And so we're going to be looking at God's glory and greatness. The title this morning is To Your Name Be Glory. So we're going to continue worshiping our God through the teaching of his word. Please take out your Bible and uh, we're going to turn to Psalm 115 as we begin this morning. We're going to look at God's glory and greatness. We're going to see a picture of God's glory and greatness evidenced through us, people who would present ourselves as followers of God, followers of the living God. Psalm 115 is where we are starting this morning, and the key thought for this thought process is that we remember it is all about God, right? It, in fact, life itself is not about us. It is about God. This is a shock to us because of the culture in which we live, right? We are bombarded on a daily basis with the lie that it is all about me or it's all about us. In fact, there are fewer greater opportunities to say something is all about me than when it comes to music in the corporate worship gathering of the body of Christ. Uh, in other words, let me, let me state this in the negative. Sadly, something that is supposed to be about God and his glory and greatness is reduced to being about us and our likes and our dislikes. <laughs> we can be pretty petty, can't we? I, I think we can. Uh, listen, if you will, to this humorous assessment of likes and dislikes concerning music in the corporate gathering. A man went to the city one weekend and attended a big city church. And he came home and his wife asked him how it was. Well, it was good, but they did something different. They sang praise choruses instead of regular songs. Praise choruses, asked his wife. Well, what, are, what are those? Oh, they're okay. They're sort of like regular songs, only different. Well, what's the difference? Asked his wife. Well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, that would be a regular song. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, 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 the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the black and white cows, the cows, the cows, the cows, are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, whoa, 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 are in the corn, are in the corn, there's fire in the corn, then if I were to repeat the whole thing two or three times, well, that would be a praise chorus. So I've now offended half of you. All right. So the next weekend, this nephew from a city, his nephew from a city came to visit and attended the local church of the small town. He went home and his mother asked him how it was. Oh, it was good. Well, they did something different. They sang hymns instead of regular songs. Hymns, asked his mother. Well, what are those? Oh, they're okay. They're sort of like regular songs, only different. Well, what's the difference, asked his mother. Well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, that would be a regular song. If, on the other hand, I were to say to you, O oh, Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry. Inclinest thine ear to the words of my mouth. Turn thou thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, inimitable, glorious truth. For the way of the animals, who can explain? There in their heads is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's son or his reign, unless from the mild tempting corn they are fenced. Yea, those cows in glad, bovine, rebellious delight have broke free their shackles, their warm pens eschewed, then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all my mild chili wax sweet corn have chewed. So look to the bright shining day by and by where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn, where no vicious animals make my soul cry, and I no longer see those foul cows in the corn. Then if I were only to do verses 1, 3, and 4 and do a key change on the last verse, well, that would be a hymn. 
All right, so now I've offended the other half of you. So everybody is offended. We can move on. All right. We can laugh at the story, right? But it would be sad if we missed the petty self-centeredness that can often be held regarding the corporate worship gathering, right? Scripture clearly presents that we should not have a self-centered approach to life. Instead of it being all about me, it is all about God. It's all about his glory. It's all about his greatness. So here we are at Psalm 115. Psalm 115, right at the beginning. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Not to us, Lord, not to us. Let's keep reading. You know, why, why should the nation say, where now is their God? Verse 2 presents a question that was raised by those nations, the Gentiles surrounding the Israelites. Where is their God? And it seems to be a rhetorical question, and inherent in the asking of the question is an answer. And this seems to be the answer. Your God isn't around. Your God can't be found. You are on your own. However, note the response of the psalmist when he is confronted with this negative presentation that it is all about him. Okay? But our God, verse 3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Now note the text, note what the text does not say here, okay? The text does not say that, uh, you know, our God is in heaven, he does what mankind wants. The text does not say that God caters to the whims of his creation. No, understand this. God is the sovereign over his creation. He is in control and he does have compassion on on his creation and he is kind and he is incredibly good. I need to be reminded of that truth. But I also need to remember this, that when the rubber meets the road, God is going to do what brings him the most glory. The psalmist understood this truth and wanted to live this truth as reality. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. We understand that God will do whatever it takes to demonstrate his glory and greatness, right, in the best way. And often this demonstration is seen through the lives of his people or those who profess to follow him. So this is where we enter the equation, right? Mankind is often the canvas on which God paints his glory and greatness. And to see evidence of this, we're going to look at various examples found throughout Scripture here this morning. And first, we're going to consider God's glory and greatness uh, through negative examples, of people who professed to follow him, right? People who presented themselves as followers of the living God. Turn over to the book of Acts. Join me there in the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need." And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It's great how the body of Christ here was serving and sharing with one another, right? Serving as an example 
as a demonstration of God's glory and greatness. Let's keep going. We we hit a chapter break here. Chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own to control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So keep this in mind, that there was nothing inherently sinful about keeping back part of the proceeds of the sale of the land. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that the presentation was, hey, here is all of it, but it really wasn't all of it. So the point of doing this was to look good in front of other people. right? And, and don't, don't miss the key aspect there at the end of verse 4, right? You have not lied to men, but to God. And I think that's, that's just a, a point of personal application and conviction that we can all draw out of this right now. If we make the choice to lie, give you know, any given scenario, and we're interacting with, well, first off, lying in and of itself would be bad enough, right? Bearing false witness. But then let's add this onto it. If we are lying to someone else who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Holy Spirit is living in them, we are making that same lie to the Holy Spirit. And so you see this this thought process of you have not lied to men but to God. All right, verse 5. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So now as we mull over this situation, we can see that God manifests his glory and greatness through the lives of those who profess to follow him. Right? God manifests his glory and greatness through the lives of those who profess to follow him. And in this instance, Ananias and Sapphira, right? it's through their disobedience that God's glory and greatness is manifested. Look at verse 11 again. Uh, this, this is good for all of us to take heed. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Who or what was the subject or the object of this fear? Well, Almighty God was. And as the rest of the church considered the actions of Ananias and Sapphira, they were reminded that God is holy. And he has commanded us to be holy as well. God takes sin very seriously. 
We live in a society that does, it does its best to uh, poo-poo certain sins and yet maybe elevate other sins. But the point is, God takes sin very seriously. And here's the personal application for us. We might be able to look at this and say, oh, ha, I would never do that. All right. So that might not be your sin of choice. How about anger rising in your heart? Uh, we might be quick to pass it off as shortness. Oh, I was just short with them. Oh, I was curt. Say, like, really? How about being unkind? You know, let, let's call it what it is. You know, we, we've, got a, we've got a heart of anger. So maybe that's the sin that we choose not to deal with. Or maybe we lust after things. You know, isn't that, that, that's the reality with lust, isn't it? It's, it's just a desire for something that isn't ours. And it can be anything. It can be, we, we can walk out into this parking lot and see someone else's car and boom, maybe that's our sin of choice. But the point is, God takes all of these things very seriously. God is holy and he commands us to be holy as well. Another negative example we can find in Old Testament scripture. Turn backwards with me to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. Old Testament scripture. Joshua chapter 7. We're going to see another negative example. As you're turning there, let me remind you about the sequence of events immediately prior to Joshua chapter 7. So Joshua and the Israelites had just obeyed God's instructions concerning the walled city of Jericho, right? And I'm sure many of you remember the directions to march around the city over a one-week period. And then it culminated with seven times around the city on the last day. Consider God's warning at the end of chapter 6. The end of chapter 6. So the Lord... Excuse me, God's wording, not warning. Wording at the end of chapter 6. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. And at the beginning of chapter 7, the Israelites decide to attack Ai. And as many of you remember, the city of Ai resoundingly defeats the initial Israelite attack. So a question might be asked here is, had the Israelites become more interested in their own glory than that of Almighty God? And I think the wording in verse 8 and leading into verse 9 is interesting there. Look at, look at that. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? You know, when Israel runs away, what shall I say? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Huh. Okay, so... The rest of verse 9 then says, then what will you do about your name? Right? And it, it, it almost could be coming across as an afterthought. It's like the first thing in Joshua's mind is like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to us? And then almost as the afterthought, it's like, oh wait, wait, that, that's right. I'm supposed to be thinking about you, Lord. So, you, you know, what, what, what's going what's to happen with your great name? And, and that is the reality for many of us. We get lulled into this thought process of thinking it's all about us. You know what? God doesn't need us. Can I just repeat that for you? God doesn't need us. All right? Considering this from a worst-case scenario, Joshua was originally more concerned about the Israelites being wiped off the face of the earth than he was about God's glory and greatness being demonstrated. But the story doesn't end with the Israelites getting beaten by the people of Ai. 
Verse 10, so the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned and they also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and they have both stolen and deceived and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand because their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Verse 14, In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it, and it shall be that the, that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. So this is the process called casting lots, right? I mean, God is specifically laying out this, the tribe, the family, the individual that has disobeyed. Verse 15, then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by the tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarites, and he brought the family of the Zarites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And right here in this setting, okay, Joshua is encouraging Achan. He's telling Achan to surrender to God by letting the glory and greatness of God shine through his repentance. In verse 20, we see the answer. Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them, and there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the, wedges, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. I'd like to stop right there. And I think if you know the rest of the story, I think you'd like for God to have stopped right there. But he didn't. Our choices have consequences. Our actions carry out, and a ripple effect goes on. Verse 25, And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Right? That's the kind of example not a single one of us would ever want to be. Yes, God's glory and greatness were demonstrated through the life of Achan, but God's glory and greatness were evidenced by his holy anger directed toward the Israelites because of Achan's disobedience. 
So here is the thought process again, personal application. The life of Achan should serve as a reminder to us that our sin is never only about us. Even in this negative example, God subtly is telling us it's not about you. If you are a follower of Christ, your sin has an effect on those around you. Now, I might sin in this particular area. Boom, right there. I might sin in a specific area. But the local body of Christ with which I identify will also be affected by my sin. My sin affects my family. My sin affects the local church fellowship. In a far greater sense, in the eyes of the non-believing world, my sin is a characterization of every person who professes to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So please remember this. Sin is never singular in its application nor in its consequence. Sin is never singular in its application nor in its consequence. When we set fire to the ship of our souls by choosing sin, we would be well advised to remember that we are not alone on the ship. We will take others down with us. Our sin will have an impact on others. And and now here, since we know that our sin is going to have an impact on those around us, we need to take seriously the the directive from the author of Hebrews, stated in Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. God's glory and greatness are demonstrated through us as we exhort and encourage one another to make the next right choice to honor God, right? To reflect his glory. And often this can be difficult, right? Think, think through this situation here that we've just observed. Achan and his family and those around him Right? Did any of his family members or his friends, did they see him take these things? We don't know. But you know, a tent isn't that big. You know, your life is lived out in front of those around you. So did anyone see a tendency in Achan's life toward coveting things that he did not have, toward lusting after something that wasn't his? So if so, the the follow-up question is very real and applicable to all of us. Why didn't anyone encourage Achan to deal with this, to do the right thing, to honor God through his obedience? God doesn't give us this laid out in the text, so we're left to wonder. But here, for us, in our lives, do we reflect the glory and greatness of God by going to someone whom we see heading down a particular path Do we reflect God's glory and greatness to come alongside them and say, hey, that isn't where you want to go. That is not going to honor the Lord. Do we lovingly confront them or do we just let them go and pretend all is well? If we just let them go, that's really simple. It's really easy. It can be difficult if we come alongside because they might turn and say, you know what? Talk to the hand. I want nothing to do with you. All right but we're seeking to honor God by going to them. Let's look at another example of God's glory and greatness. Negative example uh, is King David. King David, and many of us know the story of King David and his sin concerning Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, David is chronicled as committing adultery with Uriah's wife and then compounding the sin by having Uriah intentionally killed in battle. Now, we're not going to spend our time in that particular passage of Scripture here this morning, 
But we need to understand that David had sinned against God. And in addition, as we just saw, David's sin had an impact on those around him. So we're going to go back to the book of Psalms here this morning. Back to the book of Psalms, Psalm 32. But, but remember this, when David initially did this, he did not own up to his sin immediately. He did not own up to it immediately. He lived for a while trying to cover his sin. So here we are in Psalm 32. We'll see God's glory and greatness again through David's disobedience. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, verse 1, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Stop. Think about that. Consider this. So verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Consider this. One Christian author and speaker has made this statement regarding sin in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. There is no misery like that experienced by a child of God who lives in unrepentant sin. The text from David's psalm clearly presents this thought. David says that he refused to confess his sin. During this time of rebellion and refusal, David was a demonstration of God's glory and greatness. Right in the realm of broken relationships, isn't it interesting that the very place we should go is the place that we most desperately do not want to go? Think about it this way. If we are a child of God and are living in sin, will we do our absolute best to avoid God? Yeah, I think so. I think so because there's going to be conviction if we go to God. So one of the classic ways of avoiding God is demonstrated through lack of prayer. It's demonstrated through lack of prayer. Consider this. When we are in the middle of sin, do we really, really want to talk to God? I would offer to you that we are just like David. We refuse to confess our sin and then seek to avoid God in the process. We might maintain a semblance of spirituality, of religiosity, right? But there is no heart involved in this. I know personally when I have lived in unconfessed sin, I have tried to take my heart from God and give it to some idol that I have crafted. And this can seem pretty bleak and hopeless, and it would be hopeless except for the cross, Right? But he, so here's the hope. If we are God's child, he will not leave us alone in that state of unconfessed sin. He's not going to be good with us giving our heart to another professed God. Right? He's not going to be good with us giving our heart to an idol. So he'll still work on us. He's going to make us miserable. David's wording here in Psalm 32, Your hand was heavy upon me like the noonday sun. It's from this perspective that the author speaker made his comment. If we are God's child and are living in unrepentant sin, God will make life a living hell for us. And we should rejoice in that. We should rejoice that God is going to pursue this. Right? When we live in a state of unconfessed sin, we will receive the disciplining hand of God if we are his child. That might be disconcerting on one hand. On the other hand, I think it's incredibly comforting. It's incredibly comforting to know that if we are a child of God, he's not going to be good with us pursuing something else. In a very personal way, I can attest to this chastening hand of God. Uh, In between my first and second years of university, just across the street there at MSU, uh, 
I chose to live in rebellion against the Lord, and over a period of several months, I embezzled a significant amount of money from my employer in Glacier National Park. Uh, and during this, this period of rebellion and refusal, I couldn't pray. It, it was an interesting dynamic. I, I could not pray. I, I was able to maintain spiritual activity. I was able to take part. I mean, just bizarre. Uh, I was involved in a ministry in the national parks. And totally good with doing that. But pray? No. Talk with God? No. I wanted nothing to do with him. As time progressed and I continued to live in rebellion against my creator, he pressed his hand upon me. He pressed his hand upon me and praise God, he broke me. Right? And I'm not aware of any other time in my life where I was in such misery. God was intent on breaking me because I am his child. Even though I believe I had surrendered my life to Christ, I had chosen to pursue God of reputation. I had chosen to pursue pride and selfishness and allowed those things to secure the throne of my heart. But God is faithful. He did not let those idols supplant his position as sovereign ruler. And although I don't want this morning to be an encouragement to let your disobedience be the means of demonstrating God's glory and greatness, we should be encouraged that he will use all situations to bring glory to him. So lest we think that God's glory and greatness are only reflected through our disobedience, let me give you a couple positive examples, right? Followers of Christ being used to proclaim God's glory and greatness. Turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Now we get to get to the encouragement here this morning, all right? All right, the first example of God's glory and greatness you know, that we're going to consider this morning, it's a positive example, is Daniel chapter 1. Here's a quick synopsis of background leading into that. Judah, the southern kingdom, has been conquered, right? And the Babylonians have taken over. All right, that's our brief prelude. So Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and the three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king." So as part of the spoils of war, right, as part of the spoils of war, the Babylonian king took the best, he took the brightest out of the Jewish population, and he took them back to Babylon to uh, teach them, right, to teach them the Babylonian ways, to brainwash them in Babylonian culture and religion. Most likely, these young men would have been between the ages of 14 and 17. They were young, they were impressionable, they were teachable. And probably very scared. Keep reading. Verse 6. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. 
But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Well, the easiest thing here for Daniel and his three friends would have been to shut up and just do whatever they are told. Right? I mean, that would have been easy. Again, sanctification is not about ease. Okay? Easiest, yes. Best, no. They knew what God had commanded of them, and that was to not defile their bodies with particular food and drink. And therefore, they knew what they would have to do to live a life of integrity and obedience before Almighty God. But think about this. They were very far removed from home, right? They aren't aren't just right next door. It's not just the city next door to where they were. No, no, they are removed from home. And think about this. They would not have been the only young men brought over from Judah, right? They would have been brought with many others. And it doesn't seem that the others were having a struggle with this. So you've got some peer pressure going on. No one else back home would know what was going on. No one else back home would know that they had conceded. No one else back home would know that they had disobeyed God. But these four young men knew this, and they knew it well. God knew. God would know what they had done. And they wanted their lives to be lived as examples, reflecting the glory and greatness of God. So the four young men made a choice to obey God, even when obeying God was a very difficult thing to do. Verse 9, now God, now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter and flushed than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them, all, among them all, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus." Now, please notice this. Even in the midst of their obedience, this is not a story about these four Jewish young men. It's not for us to look at them and to commandeer, you know, and say, oh, boy, look at that, to commend their work here. No, no, no. No, this is a story about God. This is a story about his greatness. It's a story about his glory. Look at that wording again, right? God brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. God gave them knowledge and skill. 
right? The king found them 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm, right? Daniel and his friends were obedient to God. They made the right choice. And sadly, in our circles, right, in religious circles, much would be made of them, and we would point at them, we would say, oh, look, look at them. There's a certain fashion in which, yeah, okay, maybe we should. Maybe we should seek to follow others who are following the Lord, right? The Apostle Paul even made that statement. But in a far greater sense, I think we shouldn't get lost in their lives and miss God's glory and greatness, because that's what was on display here. Turn over to chapter 3. Uh, this is the next example we'll consider, chapter 3 of Daniel. If you remember correctly, you know that Nebuchadnezzar made this huge image of gold. Okay, and uh, then he issued a decree that everyone should bow and worship the, inter- the image when the instruments started playing. It's like, all right. Okay, so idol worship, perfect. You know, while Daniel must have been doing the king's business elsewhere, we do see these three young men mentioned here in this chapter, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all three of whom refused to bow before this image. Right, they refused to bow to any god other than Yahweh. So Nebuchadnezzar had this image set up on this plain, right, the plain of Dura, so it could be seen from a great distance. It could be seen by many people far around. In addition, in verses 2 and 3, the king had issued a decree that basically said that all kingdom officials were to bow to this image. Everyone, all these kingdom officials were to bow to this image. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us an exact number in this, but they're all the kingdom officials. And so we can surmise that there was a large number of them. So now we're ready to look at Daniel chapter 3. Let's start with verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So right here, this is one of the best acknowledgments of the sovereignty of God. You know, he's sovereign ruler over all things. Either through life or death, God was going to deliver these three young men. Understand, it would have been really easy for these three young men to start thinking something along these lines. You know, well, let's see here. Um, If we're dead, 
we can't really serve God, so maybe we should just make this concession right here. Right? Just one time. I mean, you, you can see the reasoning, well, just one time would turn into multiple times. And it's funny, God didn't say, you shall have no other gods before me except just one time. No, it's you shall have no other gods before me. So, would it, you know, I, I acknowledge it, 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 it was probably a legitimate struggle for these young men. Like, man, we're going to die. This is it. Right? Each perceived small decision that we make in life is a training ground for larger decisions. You know, in a strangely funny sense, we really need to grab hold of this concept. God doesn't need us alive. Okay? We, we put great emphasis on our lives, and, and there is em- there's value there because God has placed worth in us because of the cross. But in and of ourselves, no. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. His glory and greatness are going to be demonstrated. Okay, so even as we go through various situations in life, we need to recognize, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, that it's not all about us. Okay, each situation is about the glory and greatness of God. I remember preparing uh, for Lori's back surgery several years ago. You know, we were told Lori would be in the hospital for five days, and the night before the surgery... Uh, some friends came over and prayed with us. We prayed that God would shine through us, that he would use us as a testimony of his glory and his greatness to uh, the doctors and to the other medical staff there in the hospital. And immediately after the surgery, you know, the back specialist comes and he catches me. He's like, man, everything was perfect. We are good. Everything is perfect. But from that point on, things did not go so well, right? By the end of day nine, right? We were supposed to be there five days. Now it's the end of day nine. Um, I'm, I'm wrestling with God because Lori's still in the hospital. Okay, and there, we, we don't see an end in sight. You know, her, her spine is still leaking. And uh, so the next day I relate the whole situation to uh, this friend in, who had come and prayed with us, he and his wife, and uh, um, and the response from that friend was this. Isn't God good to have answered your prayer in such a dramatic way? You asked God to shine through you, and he has given you double the length of time to be a testimony of his glory and greatness. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. No, no, that's not at all what I was thinking. And quite honestly, you know, and just being bluntly honest here, like, when that statement was made, it was just like, yeah, right. No. No, no, no. I didn't want to be the example. I wanted someone else to be the example of God's glory and greatness. I was not rejoicing in God's goodness. And in fact, I was thinking, God, you are not good. And after this interaction with my friend, I drove to the hospital parking lot and there in a stupid parking lot listening to the stupid radio to a stupid song... God graciously corrected my thinking. And he did it with a song that up until that point in my life, I had really detested. All right, in fact, I detested it so much I had never listened to the second verse of that song. The second verse uses specific verbiage. 
concepts from the book of Job. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. Yeah, God is good. And I need these reminders because I can quickly buy into the lie that God is not good. So let's finish this here. Daniel, verse 19, chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar, full of fury, right, the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, their other garments, and were cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. 22, therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Well, look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language that which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other god who can be- deliver like this." And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego realized it was not all about them. Right? Their life or death was of little consequence. Only the proclamation of the glory and greatness of God was what mattered. Because we have seen their attitude toward God throughout this situation, we can almost hear them joining their voices with the psalmist. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name give glory because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. So now let's apply this to ourselves this morning. Is this true of us? Is the greatest concern in our lives that the glory and greatness of God would shine through us? Indeed, the attitude should be the same for us as we encounter various situations throughout all of life that God has brought to us to bring him glory. Uh, Let's pray. Lord God, indeed, may we see your goodness and your grace in everything that is laid out around us. Father, even again in preparing for this, um, you you have convicted my heart of a 
a, uh, a tendency to maybe not believe that you are good. So, Father, please forgive me for taking my eyes off you. Thank you for the lives of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, where we see the positive examples of being obedient to you. But, Father, we also thank you for those negative examples. We thank you for Ananias and Sapphira. We thank you for Achan. Uh, Boy, Lord, you take sin seriously. And you save us to change us. So indeed, Father, may, may we seek to honor you through our obedience to you. Continue to uh, change our thinking that we'd rightly think about you your glory and your greatness. And Lord, may you use us to shine as lights in the culture around us as well. Lord, the culture needs to hear about your truth. The culture needs to see us living lives that are different. So strengthen us to do that, Lord, until you come and we long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.